Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. In November 2005, back when Qatar had barely caused a ripple in the world of football, Two men were brought out onto a stage in Doha in front of hundreds of journalists. Pele and Diego Maradona. They are widely considered to be the best players of all time and they rarely appeared in public together. But here they were, opening Qatar's brand new Aspire Academy of Sports Excellence, a training complex for young athletes with, as Maradona would be quoted saying, facilities from another planet. Both men were reportedly paid half a million dollars for their appearance. We've come through to the football centre in the middle of Aspire, the Aspire Academy. Quotes from notable footballers up on the wall. Pele saying, success is no accident. One of the ones in big font up to my left. And then that's next to a picture of the 2019 Asian Cup champions the Qatar team, many, indeed most of those players were products of the Aspire Academy. We're just watching the end of the training session, the morning training session. Aspire was part of this programme to, to create, on one hand, a, a national football programme that would give Qatar you know, a, a, a squad that won't be humiliated at, at the World Cup or in tournaments. That's Tarek Panja, global sports reporter for the New York Times, who's been reporting on Qatar's involvement in football for many years. He thinks Aspire had two immediate purposes. The other part of the Aspire programme, if you look at what they needed to do to, to win the World Cup, was to curry favour with the executives on the, on the FIFA um, executive committee. 
they were opening these satellite aspire programs in countries like Thailand, like Guatemala, um, and elsewhere. And you're thinking, well, why here? And then you think, okay, isn't that where Warawi Makudi, for example, the Thai voter on the FIFA Expo, comes from? Qatar often scouted for players in some of the most remote, poorest parts of the world. Aspire has always said this recruitment programme was about helping to improve the life chances of young people in adversity, and no doubt it did. Some have even moved into European football. But that doesn't feel like it squares with the treatment of many migrant workers in the country, even in the Aspire complex itself. No, Aspire shot for something much bigger than that. I challenge your listeners to think whether they'd even heard of the place or even heard the name Qatar before any of this had happened. Qatar has accomplished its first and major goal of becoming known. You know, football's not a massive economic actor, if you like, but the social importance, it greases the wheels of a lot of relationships, as we've seen, particularly over the last few years. So that that's important. And there is something specific to Qatar, which is also contributing to national security, because it's a small state surrounded by big neighbouring states, uh, Saudi Arabia and Iran. There is nothing bigger as part of the global conversation than football. Today we get under the skin of what this World Cup really means for Qatar as we explore the stadiums and find out what's ready for the tournament, including the jewel in Qatar's crown, the Lusail Iconic Stadium. Football is more than a game, but often not for the reasons we think. I'm Kate Mason and this is episode two of Inside the Qatar World Cup. First, we're off to another game of football in a place that Gareth Southgate and England will come to know very well. On our second day in Qatar, exactly two months until the start of the World Cup, we're sat in a 12,000-seater stadium, Al Wakra Sports Complex, which will be England's training base for the tournament. We're here to watch two of Qatar's biggest top-flight teams, Al Garafa and Al Rayyan, play in the first round of the Aridu Cup, their equivalent of the League Cup. Counting subs, backroom staff, officials and a few relaxed stewards, there are fewer than 100 people watching. Outside, food vendors encircle the stadium with no customers to serve. We're sitting in the seats behind the dugout and then on the other side of the stadium there's probably... Well, I could spend a bit of time counting them, but I'm not, I'm not gonna, I don't know. <laughs> 20, 25, 20, 25, 30 people. Yeah, 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 not so many. I'm with Tom. That's not his real name. He used to work in Qatar's top-flight domestic competition, the Qatar Stars League, and knows it as well as anyone. Would that be a, a reasonable number to expect at a game like this? Uh, probably, yeah, because there's not really a... The League Cup in Qatar is not such a big pull. Some fans tell us that the low attendances are because the stadium is a bit far away. It's a 20-minute drive from Doha city centre. One Sudanese fan, perhaps more plausibly, says that most people just often don't have time for football because of work. 
Both teams have put out young sides, many of them under 23. Only one name stands out on the team sheet, Yassine Brahimi. He of Porto fame and captain of Algeria's national team. How come you support Al Garafa then? Why Al Garafa? Yeah. All player from Algeria. Yassine Brahimi, Ishaq Bufodil, Mehdi Taharat and Moulaya Farid. Team Algeria. Yeah. Yeah. Producer Finn heads over to the opposite stand to talk to the cluster of fans. As a guy, he's more likely to be welcomed by a group of men in this setting. The lack of a functioning women's toilet in our stand made the unlikeliness of three whole women in attendance tonight obvious enough. In the end, a charming Qatari man shows me where I can find the VIP men's loo as an alternative. And uh, why in the cup is there not many fans? Usually there are... There are a few fans, so that does not make any difference, like between the uh, league or the, the league cup. Which team has the biggest support outside? Garrafa now. You know why Garrafa making uh, booking ticket free, transport free for uh, people? That's why. You might have heard the stories of migrant workers being bussed into stadiums to fill stands. In the trial of Qatar's flagship Lusail iconic stadium in September, hundreds of migrant workers were brought in to fill one part of the stadium, recognisable by their identical white, blue or red T-shirts. In the Gulf, though, and in Qatar especially, low-gate receipts don't seem to matter. Every club has a wealthy local benefactor who helps fund transfers for star names both as a sort of gift and as something of a flex. It's a fascinating thing of culturally, you know, showing kind of one-upmanship. I've got a better player than you, you know. They'll say this in the Magiluses and, and those kind of things, so... Al Ryan, for example, were the only club able to meet James Rodriguez's wage demands last season. But 16 appearances later, he was off to Olympiacos. And uh, James Rodriguez was playing for Al Rayyan. What was your opinion on him? Not good. All the time he have injury. He didn't do anything. He did play also. A few years ago, his premature departure might have been a considerable blow to the QSL. The league has different ambitions now. I think that they've used the league particularly in the build-up to the World Cup, is almost like a, a training ground for the national team players. Like, the guys from who graduate from Aspire go and play for QSL clubs. They get experience. They then get selected by the national team. They go through the national team ranks. So the league is, is almost like a huge... like a training ground, almost, for, for, for Qatari national players. Yes, Every team in the QSL is allowed five foreign professional players. The rest must all be Qatari. But weirdly, for the first half of this season, no members of the Qatar national team are participating in their own league. Instead, they've all been on a training camp for the last six months. It says a lot about the priorities of the league right now. Also, coaches have been hired for QSL teams with the express intent of developing players. And, and, and their profile of managers have been selected. And even the professional players now, they've got a new director of football at the QSR, which is a bit of an odd concept. But uh, he's been charged, you know, only for this season to start selecting younger players and players that are more sellable. 
you know, sellable assets that basically could get picked up by bigger European teams. Tonight, a young, rangy 19-year-old striker from Paris Saint-Germain, Sekou Yansane, is starting up front for Al Rayan. He was a top scorer in France's under-19 league last season. There'll no doubt be more from where that came from. Qatar Sports Investment, the arm of Qatar's sovereign wealth fund who own PSG, recently bought a stake in Portuguese club Braga, and with it, access to one of the most exciting academies in Europe. But there has actually been a lot of backlash to this. So, for example, some clubs, you know, there's a system in Qatar where you register the player and then it's down to the league to say if that player is, gets a licence to register. And some players haven't been, haven't been allowed to be registered for various reasons and, and that's been frustrating, I think, for some clubs because they haven't been able to get the players in maybe that they wanted initially. Wait, so you were saying this, this sporting director is working, QSL, is working across the whole of the QSL league? Yeah, yeah. So it's called Antero Henrique. Antero Henrique has been Porto and, surprise, surprise, PSG's sporting director. He is thought to have been influential in persuading Kylian Mbappe and Neymar to move to Paris during his first summer there. And it turns out that tonight he is one of the 100 or so people watching on. Um, so, yeah, actually, the guy we've just been talking about, the sporting director, he's actually here taking in the game so yeah I'm introduced to him uh, we are here to support the clubs we have to find uh, the best opportunities for them and the uh, best evaluation also in order to help them to choose the best players and best coaches and to increase the level of competition in the, in the end so the idea is that you would match a player to a specific club or you'd make a recommendation is that how it works we make recommendations uh, concerning the, the players that they need and the position that the clubs need is not, uh, not easy because we have a lot of clubs and a lot of players in the market, but we try to manage the best way possible in order to give them the solution that, uh, that uh, in the end we, we need to increase the level of our, our football. So you are thinking about every single club when you're doing your job and trying to identify players? Yes, we try, we try. We are starting, we try to, to, to help them, we try to find the, the best players for one of the, for the best league in the golf, of course, and one of the best, uh, the leagues with more potential in the, in the world now. Right. And so what happens if, say, there's a player that would fit equally well at Irayan and Algarafa? And what happens then? It's up to them to decide. Eh? Depends on, the players are not, are not similar. In the end, you have, if you propose a player to one club, they have a period of time to decide if they want or if they don't or if they have the right the conditions to, to sign him or not. And so you think it could never happen that one club would be like, why have you suggested these three people? We would like these. We would like to look at these three the people. Profiles are different and the coaches are different and the style of playing of each club is different. Okay. You have to find the right profile for the right club and for the right coach, of course. Qatar's top flight is pretty much only registered in the consciousness of European football fans as another far-flung destination for the washed-up stars to get their last payday. It started in 2003 when the Qatar Football Association gave each club $10 million to buy some big-name foreign players and build the game's popularity. It worked. In came Ronald and Frank de Boer, Romario, Marcel Desailly, Gabriel Bassistuta, Stefan Effenberg and... Guardiola. But Qatar has now set its sights on something bigger. Our league is going to change enormously. Close by is the executive director of football development at the QSL, Dr. Ahmed Abbasi. 
and he leaves no doubts about that. We have been um, a, a buyer's league for the past um, decade or so, but this is going to change because in the future, when you ask about the Qatar Stars League, um, people will not remember um, the Chavis or the Raouls who, who came here at the end of their careers, but the next Chavi, the young talent that will go from here to uh, a top uh, European league. There is a dream taking shape here. A dream in which, in the future, it won't be Barcelona's La Masia or the streets of Rio de Janeiro or even the Paris suburbs producing football's next great talents. But Qatar, former hosts of the World Cup, with all the cultural cachet that brings. But standing in this stadium with fewer than 30 fans, it seems that this dream doesn't feature fans. It doesn't feature a competitive league where clubs actually choose their own players rather than being served them by algorithm. So can this football project really survive contact with reality? Sepp Blatter has admitted the decision to award the World Cup to Qatar when he was FIFA president was a mistake. Blatter, who's now 86... The day we released last week's episode, Sepp Blatter, ever the master of timing, reiterated his view that hosting the World Cup in Qatar was a mistake. Asked why he thought that, Blatter didn't mention worker rights abuses or the country's poor stance on LGBTQ rights. Instead, he said, it's too small a country. Football and the World Cup are too big for that. It took my mind back to a conversation I had with someone here in Doha, a resident who knows the city well. You're a Costa Rica fan? Yes. You were at uh, Costa Rica, Brazil? She went to St. Petersburg, the 2018 World Cup. So that city was hosting four teams. It was Serbia, Switzerland, Brazil and Costa Rica. And it was crazy. Like, um, well, you wouldn't get a lot of fans from Costa Rica or maybe from Switzerland or Serbia, but you would get a lot from Brazil, right? But it's still not a big number if you think about those four teams. And the city was like crazy. The traffic was crazy. I was thinking I wouldn't make it to the game because of the traffic. The, uh, the metro also crazy. And St. Petersburg is huge. It's a huge city. And I, I keep wondering like how Qatar is gonna make it happen when it's just one city that's not as big as in Petersburg and with all the teams just in one city. I'm not sure what's gonna happen, but the question is there. Whatever set Blatter's motivations behind that interview, he's right. But it's also one of the most obvious points you realise the moment you arrive. In September 2010, before the bid was won, FIFA's inspection team spent three days in Qatar and drew the same conclusion. Hosting the event in Qatar, the smallest country to host a World Cup since Uruguay in 1930, would pose a number of logistical challenges. How is Doha, a city a little bit bigger than Bristol, with no experience of hosting an event of this scale, really going to accommodate an extra million people for a World Cup? Of course, there has been a massive overhaul of Doha's own infrastructure. I'm Daniel Reicher. I'm the co-author of Qatar and the 2022 FIFA World Cup Politics, Controversy, Change. 
Qatar uh, published in 2008 its Qatar National Vision 2030. And it states that Qatar wants to become an advanced country by 2030. And sport is integrated into this national development plan. The metro, the port, the airport, um, the new downtown district, Meshrape, the new city, Lucille. The World Cup just sets a timeline to accomplish these projects. First of all, $36 billion spent on a new three-line metro system that connects seven of the eight stadiums. You're going to hit the metro now because there's this idea that you could go to, theoretically, four games in a day if you wanted to because the, one of the benefits of Qatar as a host nation, as they put it in their bid, is that it's very small, so it's accessible, accessible for people. I don't know how realistic that is, just because if you think about the volume of people moving around, I wonder how, how manageable that be. Because we've been wandering around today, because we're intrepid explorers on your behalf, but people don't really walk that much in Qatar as a rule. It's like in those parts of, parts of America where everything's quite set up for cars. It's a similar vibe here, a lot of big roads, a lot of SUVs. Here we go. The metro is sleek, all high-vaulted ceilings and smooth marble floors. But several residents have already expressed concerns to us that the metro might not be up to the task for the World Cup. Last October, the return of schools and of in-person work in Qatar triggered an unprecedented spike in traffic. So, during the World Cup, fans are being discouraged from taking anything other than public transport. In some places, vehicles are now banned entirely, including the Corniche, Doha's main north-south thoroughfare. Then last month, it was announced that for international fans to hire a car themselves, they would have to pay almost $1,400 for the privilege. Aside from some shuttle buses, the metro will be the main option for thousands of fans. And we're standing here in this completely deserted entrance hall. Just the two of us. Not a person has passed us in the last seven or eight minutes. And to think of the comparison between now and what's expected in two months' time. It's just insane. Life in Qatar will be unrecognisable during this World Cup. Here are some of the women we met at the tournament on our first night here, talking about the practicalities. Changed the school year, so they started earlier, at the beginning of August, yeah. instead of the end of August. And then from the 1st of November, yeah, or you're going to be online, and then the end of November, all of December, they're basically closed the schools and shut down. I think they're doing it to stop traffic and... Yeah. Just because it's Isn't crazy. It make that much difference? Oh yeah, yeah. 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 In general, yeah, going yeah. To, like in the morning, it's like there's so much traffic in general yeah. when the schools are there. So, imagine like one more million people. Yeah. Where will they we'll go? See. So it is a case of so schools are shut and they're doing. I think it's twenty percent in the workforce you're allowed within a certain area of Doha, so like main central Doha, West Bay. Yes. If your office is there. I think they're trying to shift so you'd start at 7, finish at 11, so then all the games that are in the afternoon, there'll be no traffic, 20% of workforce within within your workplace. There is the air of things just not quite being in place for this World Cup. We go to Al-Rayyan Stadium, two months to the day before it'll be hosting USA versus Wales, and frankly, from the outside, it looks incredible. But the area around it is a dusty, featureless expanse, broken up only by some construction tents and some trucks. It's been a race against the clock to build enough accommodation for the fans. 
20,000 more rooms were made available just in September. In July, FIFA proudly unveiled its tent city in the outer reaches of Alhor, where $380 a night can buy you an Arabian camping experience. Two weeks before its grand opening, we found it at the end of a desert road as night began to fall. So there's a whole load of um, huts, pointy huts in a row, um, not quite equidistant. And there's three security guards just manning the entrance. It's kind of this bank, isn't it, after the tent, and it's just, just like gravel and soil for miles between here and like the town, isn't it? Yeah, it looks like a sunken lake. Um, but the weird thing is, so we're here and it's dark now. And, um, and we can see Al Bayt Stadium in the distance, all beautifully lit up. And there's the, the park around it, which is also quite lit. But then apart from that, this area that we're in, where this fan village, inverted commas, fan accommodation is, is just on the end of a spur of a road. And then there's nothing, nothing around it. Also visit Al Bidda, the place intended as Qatar's main fan park with a capacity of 40,000. It's the home of this World Cup's FIFA Fan Festival. Outside of the stadium perimeters and Doha's limited selection of hotel bars with licenses, Al Bidda is the only place where non-residents will be able to buy alcohol. When we get there, though, there's not much to see. Oh my god! <laughs> oh my god! I cannot tell you how unready this theoretical fan park looks to the to the observer on the cgi of this park on the fifa website one image shows vast rolling green parkland this isn't that it's difficult to imagine how it could ever be that there are no trees no grass at all it's just scaffolding and dirt tracks and generators and one two three four five six six or seven construction workers in high-vis. A quick Google search shows that the food festival running along the Corniche nearby only started recruiting suppliers in August. One person tells me that tournament organisers have already had to scale back their original plans of 400 vendors because of the short notice. We briefly chat with two workers making their way to their shift. Yeah, we want to beautify the place so that the place will look good. Yeah. Show that to the, our fans that will come to watch World Cup. They are going to free. You All think right? this will be ready in two, two months? Yeah, from now to one week or one week plus, this place is going to have another shape. Okay. Yeah, we promise They're, you that. You're planting grass or something? Well, anyhow, whatever you want, you're going to see it here. <laughs> that is the Qatar way in 2022. This tournament promises whatever you want. As the tournament slogan reads... Specs amazing. We have always said that uh, Qatar will deliver 
the best ever edition of the FIFA World Cup. Albida Fan Park, two weeks out from the opening ceremony now, was still boarded up and not ready. After the break, we head to the jewel in the crown of Qatar's World Cup. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. This episode of the Football Ramble is sponsored by BetterHelp. Life throws many different challenges at us, and as a result, we all have our own sources of stress. Whether big or small, those stresses can impact our lives in unpredictable ways, and if we don't address them, they can have an outsized and unwanted impact. Therapy is a safe place in which we can address these issues, learn to understand them, and find ways to work through them. Having therapy can be beneficial to anybody, not just people who've experienced major traumas, even if you may have not considered it before. It could be simply a time for you to get things off your chest, a way to learn positive coping skills, or how to set boundaries. Ultimately, it can be whatever you need it to be. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. All you have to do is fill out a brief questionnaire and BetterHelp will match you to a licensed therapist. You can even switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com forward slash ramble today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.com forward slash ramble. There was another thing that one of the Qatari women told me the other night that caught my interest. Yeah, but both my brothers, one is in the police force and one's like in the army. Like they're basically like in charge of like, um, uh, like, like basically of like the teams and like everyone is assigned a team and then they're like the security for the team, mm-hmm. uh, the Qatari security. And uh, yeah, they had to be back like since beginning of August and they're not going to be allowed to travel till like end of December. Mm. And yeah. The, and w- w- during the World Cup, like I think a lot of them, they're staying at like the army base or like the army camp, and the like the police officers are staying in one camp, like just so they're on call and like it's easier to get to them basically. So everybody is vo- who is in Qatar is involved in this project basically. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Whether they know about yeah. it or are interested in it or not. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's easy to think, especially from our vantage in Europe, that this tournament is just the plaything of the Qatar state that it's their responsibility and theirs alone. But in such a small country, it follows that surely no other nation's population has ever been so affected by preparation for a World Cup. 
and no population faces such a different reality after it. I find myself increasingly intrigued to find out how native Qataris actually feel about this World Cup. It's hard. Many Qataris I know with fascinating stories wouldn't speak on tape. I asked John McManus about it, the author of Inside Qatar. He knows the feeling well. Yeah, I think it is important to shoot down the canard that, like, you know, Qataris don't have a voice because, like, they clearly do. And and there are battles going on uh, over what direction the country should take and how it should engage with the world. But they're just not raised. And it's, it's seen as uncouth to raise these, especially to outsiders. Qataris are only about 350,000 uh, in the country, but it's really a mistake to view it as a monolithic group. Uh, there are profound uh, cleavages and differences in how Qataris view their country and how they want their country to operate. Um, and there are very much reformist people in there and people who are very keen for their country to host the world cup and are keen for it to be used as a catalyst to change how they're viewed in the world and to change how labor relations work in their country um but there's also a very uh, also very conservative people here who uh, wish the world cup had never come here uh, despise the attention that's brought uh will stay at home or maybe even fly away on holiday for a month while it goes on and then as soon as it's over kind of would you know really like everything to go back to how it was before <laughs> there's a profound generational battle not only generations but you know just what what should the country look like one night we head into Sukhwaka Styled as a traditional Qatari marketplace but renovated in 2006, the year the Asia Games arrived, it is a complicated entanglement of young and old. We speak to one Qatari shop owner who's been selling various Middle Eastern souvenirs there for 20 years. When we ask him about the World Cup, he shakes his head and points to the scaffolding behind us in the square, one of the fan zones. Lots of fans will be here, he says, but no one has told us what's going on. Here, I am reminded of both sides of this complex World Cup. Construction workers lie stretched out on benches in the square here, in the shadow of the fan zone that's still being built. We ask one of them a question, but he shakes his head and gestures back to the construction site. Supervisors might be watching. In the same square, we find a group of Indian men and ask them what they think of the World Cup being here. Their eyes light up. We didn't never get in uh, India also, uh, like World Cup there. Here is also Asian people and other people also. They can they can watch, they can see the World Cup also. Even uh, in my childhood also, we look in like in TV. Like we look in match also TV. We can see in direct. We can meet the like Messi, Neymar, Ronaldo. Now I can go to watch World Cup. The other country maybe Russia before Brazil and Russia was very expensive. I can go to there. Now here, no little money. Just I will get the ticket. Lusail Stadium is surrounded by a city that doesn't exist yet. Lusail City, Qatar's so-called future city, will one day house a quarter of a million people, all of them high-income professionals. Right now, one balcony in the cluster of flats facing the stadium shows signs of life, and the project to build hotels, restaurants and shops here is still years away. 
The stadium itself glitters with a striking gold-patterned exterior. 80,000 seats are within. We're here to speak to the man who's overseen the project from day one, Tamim El Abed. He works on behalf of the Supreme Committee, the tournament's organising body. Nick McGeehan has had plenty of experience with them. From my time in Qatar, I'll never forget this. I mean, I remember going to the Al Bidda Tower, which is where the Supreme Committee have their offices. At, you know, and it sits on the Corniche, and it's this beautiful futuristic building. And inside, it's an army of really sort of highly literate and articulate PR people from all over the world. And you come out of the Al Bidda Tower thinking, these guys are going to deliver amazing. You know, these guys are incredible and, and they talk the language that you want to hear, right? And then later the next day, you go to the Ministry of Labour. Now, the Ministry of Labour is actually responsible for protecting workers' rights in Qatar. Now, you go in there and you come out of that meeting, you know, just very depressed about the scope for about the potential for this organisation to effectively protect migrant workers. So the Supreme Committee, to me, is in many respects, it's like a PR organisation that has some construction interests. And actually, it, the whole point of it is to get people into that building and to not get people to go into the Ministry of Labour, because those that's the organisation that's actually responsible for enforcing these laws. In the middle of September, Lucille hosted a game between the Saudi and Egyptian champions, it was its first and only near-capacity trial. It was by far the biggest stadium crowd Qatar has ever seen for any event. 77,000 people, according to official figures. Doha news journalist Menatala Ibrahim was there. I faced a lot of issues, um, unexpected. You know, uh, we parked the car, the parking was 45-minute walk. Um, in the heat, which is, was very, very, very challenging. Um, some parkings had buses, but some parkings didn't, which I found quite weird. I think that there was somehow of a lack or they didn't understand or they didn't know how many people would come to the Silk Cup. Um, so it was quite difficult to walk, especially for people, for example, who are old, people with kids. By half time, the stands were out of water. And when the game was over, the 400 metre journey to the metro next to Lucille turned into a 2.5 kilometre long queue as fans tried to leave. And this was, don't forget, at a game that wasn't serving alcohol. We had a lot to ask to meme about. We walk out onto the pitch and for the first time, this World Cup feels real. It's breathtaking, all sleek curves and banks of pristine white seats that seem right on top of the pitch. Tamim tells us about the stadium's compactness. So the first row of seating is, is basically the shortest it can be anywhere in the world. There's no running track. He tells us about the sound system, the lights. Pumps, uh, cooling, equipment, eight presentation studios. You know, and he shows us the VIP area with a throne reserved for the Emir of Qatar, the country's head of state and monarch. That's the official VIP tribune for the tournament. This has been your baby for the past 10 years. Yeah. And, of course, it means you're responsible for, for well, presumably, bloody everything, like, from the people, <laughs> from the people working here to, the, to, what it, to how it fits together, to what it looks like. So sure. it's a huge job. How do you feel when you see so many, report, uh, so many of the reports when they're talking about the stadium or the other stadiums in Qatar are not talking about anything apart from the, the deaths that, that we have heard about right. from the workers? So... Um it's a bit of a conflict for me to read 
things like that because I live the reality. And the major impression in the international media is one of um, chaos and a haphazard way of building things and people dropping like flies off scaffolds. So it's a bit strange for me. When you get dragged into these discussions, it becomes, it almost trivializes the presence of human beings and it's totally wrong. And people who want to write will always write. So you're not aware of, of loss of life around this specific stadium? On this specific stadium, I've been the project manager since January of 2013. There hasn't been a single fatality on this project. The reason I can tell you that, standing here today with hand on heart, is because every first aid case in this stadium is brought to my attention. So if somebody scratches their hand on the edge of that wall, I'll find out about it. There will always be violators, and there will always be rogue companies who don't adhere to the law then you know there's only so much enforcement we can do and penalizing and blacklisting before you're left with nobody to work with so for our listeners if any of them were happening to come to the world cup in person or lucky enough even to have tickets to the world cup final yep. and they were here buying their chips or their coca-cola in the on the concourse um before the games and the people that they they were serving them in in the stadium yep. or working as security guards letting them in how far can you assure them or can you reassure them that, that these people will be being looked after, paid on time and not subject to feeling oppressed by the, the system that, they, that, they, that is employing them? If they are in that position, that means their employer has already been screened and vetted and signed multiple commitments that they are remitting salaries on time, that they are affording a certain quality of accommodation this is all part of the host country and FIFA's commitments, and it's a system that's in place. It's not a very complicated system. If somebody bids to do work for you, they're brought in, they're audited and screened before they even sign a contract with you, and then when they do sign that contract with you, they're signing up to multiple really stringent but simple standards to follow. So that person you're seeing uh, 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 works for an employer who's already been screened. Are those commitments set in stone and do people break the rules after they've signed? Because people will sign anything to get business, right? Yes, rules are broken. But where we are today in uh, September of 2022 relative to where we were in December of 2010 when Qatar won uh, uh, the right to host the tournament and the real enhancements and I would say even reforms that have been made to construction-related uh, safety legislation are phenomenal. It's a real turnaround. If you listen to the discourse coming out of Qatar and the Supreme Committee lately, it matches exactly what Tamim told us back in September. It's an awkward kind of engagement. The Australian national team released a video last month where 16 of their players called on Qatar to recognise same-sex relationships and improve the rights of migrant workers. These migrant workers who have suffered are not just numbers. Like the migrants that have shaped our country and our football... They possess the same courage and determination to build a better life. As players, we fully support the rights of the LGBTI plus people. But in Qatar, people are not free to love the person that they choose. The Supreme Committee said, We commend footballers using their platforms to raise awareness for important matters. And added, New laws and reforms often take time to bed in. And robust implementation of labour laws is a global challenge. Now there is definitely truth in this. The labour laws are enabled by a global system and companies in the West have directly profited from Qatar, not least the London-based PR consultancies who advise the Supreme Committee. But 12 years since World Cup construction began and this messaging loses credibility. 
Barney Saraswati has heard this PR in relation to migrant worker abuses for years. They set up the worker welfare standards. They had audits for their subcontractors. They did treat their people well. And over the years, they had some recruitment um, fee reimbursements taking place. But what we need to keep in mind is, if I'm not mistaken, at its height, there were no more than 38 or 40,000 workers on World Cup projects who were governed by the Supreme Committee uh, worker welfare standards. And you're talking about 1.5 million lower income workers versus like 38 to 40,000. The subcontractor is not a boogeyman. The subcontractor is a local business. Uh, and you haven't held them to account. They're not accountable. These are very powerful families who run these uh, contracting companies who profit from the moment they start recruitment through kickbacks, uh, through you know bonds in some places. And all of that is realized from the workers at origin. Meanwhile, on the Supreme Committee's very sites, the reality is quite different. Joffrey Ocheno was a health and safety inspector on construction sites in 2020, including Lucille. We put Tamim's words back to him. He said he had never experienced or heard of injuries on site being reported. Production and completion was the priority as opposed to following procedures, especially for permit work and following procedures on safety aspects of the migrant workers. Actually, I would say my influence was so minimal. Why? Because I was the one mandated to take care of, uh, of the safety aspect of the site. I used to stop the work. But an order comes from above. For example, from the project engineer, from the project manager saying, I have instructed the work to continue. And if you continue to stop work, we'll kick you off. So, obviously, because I'm there to earn, apart from doing what I'm supposed to do, I would fall back, of course, at the expense of the migrant work. There's nothing I could do. In case we've forgotten why this has been allowed to happen, why these stadiums had to be built from scratch in an inhospitable climate that put workers at risk, why the World Cup is starting in a week's time at all, well, it's because it was allowed to by FIFA and Sepp Blatter. Because it seemed worthwhile to them. But from a Qatar perspective, it's just the next stage in a national project, a growth plan towards a bold new future. I, I think it's fair to say, certainly in the um, eyes of the Western world, it has been a complete failure if you think of this country looking softer and more cuddly than it would have in, in 2009, 10 uh, before Sepp Blatter opened the envelope to reveal Qatar is going to host a 2022 World Cup. On the other hand, it it is known to investors, businesses, etc. It is in in other rooms, in other forums. You 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 see you see people are are doing business with this country. Um, politically, it's 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 I think a lot more significant than it was in in 2010. So it depends on, on what level you're looking at, at Qatar from or what lens you're looking at it through. Qatar is now a country that everybody knows. Qatar is a country that um, is recognized by the international community 
But I think there is a gap in the perception of elites and on the grassroots level. I think if you if we would survey like foreign ministries around the world, uh, a vast majority of them would talk very positively about Qatar as a reliable partner. Also, the experiences in like in British, German companies, Qatar is like a safe investor. I mean, look like in my country, Volkswagen, the world largest car manufacturer, owned 70% by uh, Qatar. They are a very safe, long-term thinking investor. So the experience with Qatar are pretty good. So I, I think amongst elites, you get like uh, pretty good assessments uh, about Qatar. But on the grassroots level, like when we see fan protests, uh, 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 like in Germany, by Munich fans because of the sponsorship of Qatar Airways, it's a different story. When the country won the bid in 2010, there was just one stadium already built right next to Aspire. The Khalifa Stadium was opened in 1976 and it'll host England's very first game. When we spoke to its stadium project manager, Mansour El-Mahanadi, there was one brief moment where he let slip what he felt was the significance of what was taking place. As a citizen, it's a moment that will not be repeated again. In my life, huh? uh, I don't know, my next, next, next generations will come later on, okay, Qatar will host another World Cup, I don't know. Makes us feel better, feel uh, that yes, we do something for them. At the end of the day, after one or two years, yes, maybe I will retire. Somebody will come back, okay, to continue this achievement. If there was any doubt what this World Cup means, consider this, that the final, December the 18th, 2022, lands on Qatar National Day. Hopefully many fans will enjoy themselves, particularly the thousands coming from nearby countries in the Middle East who share in the pride of a World Cup in their region. But really, we're all being summoned to be a part of this national project. Think about the sight of Pele and Maradona embracing on stage in front of Aspire. That gave Qatar the ultimate status symbol. Here were the best footballers in history, opening what will be the home of the future's best players. And now, the best players in the world today are about to converge on Qatar. Our third and final episode is out on Sunday. We meet Qatar's first publicly gay person and find out the true reality for LGBTQ plus people beyond this tournament. After all the noise, after all the promises, we ask, what will be the true legacy of Qatar 2022? We contacted the Supreme Committee for comments and they gave us this statement. We have always been committed to ensuring that this World Cup leaves a transformational, social, human, economic and environmental legacy and is remembered as a landmark moment in the history of our region. Our work in the field of workers' rights in particular has set important new benchmarks across the region, which we will continue to advocate for. This work will continue long after the World Cup has concluded, as it is important to us that we continue to instill and build on the progress made over the last decade. You have been listening to Inside the Qatar World Cup, presented by me, Kate Mason. The producers are Finn Ranson and Charlie Morgan. Sound design is by Tom Wally. Our executive producers are Luke Aaron Moore and John Teague. See you on Sunday. The Football Ramble is a Stack production and part of the Acast Creator Network. 